Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're off! We're off! Here we go. We cut right in. Right in there. And this is a really special day, guys. There's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. Um, uh, Natalie is away. Yes. Uh, so while, while, while the cat's away, uh, Natalie is the cat. Uh, the mice, me and Nathaniel, will play a couple of songs and uh, mainly chat about stuff. Try our best. Try our best. Uh, We've got Irene in charge this week uh, and she's already nailed it. We're already two hours ahead of schedule because we're recording (laughs) at midday. Um, That's his which is the time it goes out. Which is the time it goes out. We're we're now exactly 48 hours. uh, In your futures. Is it 48? It's not. It's not. It's Yeah. Yeah, it will be. It's not. It's seventy-two, isn't it? Nah, because it's Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Friday. Thursday, Friday. Yeah, we're forty-eight hours. We're forty-eight hours in your future. We know what's going to happen in, in the past. For... You're in the past. You we're guys are the past. past. We're the future, mate. We are ghosts of the past. Forty-eight hours in the past, telling you it's been all right. I mean, it's very useless hearing ghosts from the past, isn't it? Because they can't tell you about everything that's coming up. No, and it also it just means that all we can tell you is things that happened two days ago. And I haven't, uh, even, se- haven't even seen the news to tell you. Oh, <laughs> let's stay away from the news today. Fuck me. <laughs> what a cunt. So, um, here we go. I don't know what, what you mean. I haven't wow. seen it. Wow. One minute into the one minute into the show, and we're already dropping clangers left, right, and centre. Wow, um, I've missed some news. But this is forty-eight okay. hours in, in the your past. past. In your past, if you're listening to it live, and it's actually probably more likely that you're listening to it as a podcast, uh, which means that fuck, I can't work that, out for everyone, guys. The last two minutes has been a waste of everyone's time, including uh, ours. And uh, and but, but, but what is it if not a waste of time? And um, we're here to waste your time. I was, uh, and also the other thing we're celebrating right now is Malta is back. Oh yeah, one hundred and eighty-three on the Maltese charts. It does specifically say comedy, so it might be in the Maltese comedy chart. Maybe comedy charts. Maybe that's where we are. I don't think that we are trying to be funny. It's weird that. <laughs> <laughs> we are comedians, but there's more. But there's more to us than that. Um, mm. I was in a restaurant. Oh uh, yeah, a little uh, Vietnamese place that I've never been to before on uh, Shaftesbury Avenue. Lovely. Um, I went to see some comedy. I went to see Phil Ellis. Oh yeah, uh, at the Soho Theatre. Um, because uh, uh, I like Phil. Phil's brilliant. Um, uh. I'll talk maybe I'll talk about anyway. We're in this Vietnamese restaurant, and um, I was there with my friend Joe DeCosta, former fan club, uh, mm-hmm. fan club clubhouse member. And we were sat next to this couple that were on a date, and they were talking about stuff that they like doing. Oh, god, and first dates are very difficult, and it's a case of sort of like, oh, I don't know, it was impossible not to really hear, yeah. But I didn't want to really listen in, but it's just like, it's one of those things where it's not, I'm not, my ears aren't traveling to them. Their, their voices are traveling to my ears. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it was, you know, but he was like talking about, and I when I say talking about that sounds like he was going into some depth. He wasn't, 
uh, I just heard him say uh, podcast mainly. Uh, <laughs> I like to expand my mind. Um, <laughs> and I like to think that's the sort of thing that we're offering people. It's more <laughs> than comedy. We're expanding people's minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's clever, clever comedy. The kind it's funny, but you're learning something as well. It's clever comedy because it's not necessarily funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of comedy these days is very clever. Yes. That's right. Alternative to comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Me too clever. Just want to say this is a shout out to all the comedians out there because I know you're listening. Uh <laughs> There's one thing com comedians are famous for, it's supporting each other's podcast. Um, <laughs> just keep up the good work, guys. We're almost out of the woodwork. So, um, out of the woodwork. <laughs> so, uh, we're, like wood, we're like little wood lice. Um, <laughs> went to see Phil Ellis yesterday because my girlfriend uh, is in the show. No, not because my girlfriend is in the show, but... Um, uh, went to see it. Oh, is it like a play? Is it? Is no. It? Well, it's sort of like it's funny. It's the sort of thing that would be very easy to do in Edinburgh. Right. Uh, because there's comedians everywhere. Everyone's there. Yeah. And you just get a bunch of people to just help out. But when it actually comes to touring, it's like, oh, this is impossible. Why did I do this? <laughs> I, I always found that when I was doing Edinburgh shows, when I'd sort of like get David Trent and Chris Boyd to do music stuff, uh, they'd be in my band. And then you'd go, oh, but how how do we tour it and it's like oh god i've got you've got to not only make enough money for you but you've got to make enough money to make it worthwhile for the people that are touring with you um and so these things just sort of don't really don't really work eventually um but unless yeah unless you're just i mean with sketch groups if there's four people in the sketch group they tend to get paid the same amount as a solo act. Yes, they do, yeah. So you're splitting everything four ways plus travel. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a fucking brutal industry, isn't it? Anyway, <laughs> Phil Ellis was on and all of his, uh, he had a bunch of other people that were in the show. But it was great. It was at the Soho Theatre. Uh, I've seen, I've already seen something else at the Soho. I saw Sanel Patel at the Soho uh theatre um and he was uh he was really great but that was months ago now um it's good space but it was really good because the way the way it is is the stuff that happens where oh no the show doesn't go to plan it's like a biography it's like um a biopic of his life but it doesn't go quite to plan and then stuff. But there was genuine stuff that was kicking off yesterday and stuff that was planned and stuff that was meant to be planned but didn't go right. And so there's like five elements at play that some of it was deliberate and some of it wasn't. And because, you know, when whenever it's just like, oh, no, we're on the wrong page in the script and you go, well, that's planned. Uh, and then it turned out that some of that wasn't planned. <laughs> And then so the, the audience are probably going, that's meant to happen. Yeah, but the audience are going, yeah, yeah, right. So that was the thing. It was just like, well, this is definitely, you know, he's they're comedians, right? They're not, um, you know, there's a lot of acting involved in comedy, but I'm just like saying comedians, sometimes their acting isn't as subtle. And, uh, the, the, this, you know, oh, no, this is going badly. So it's like signposted a little bit, you know, and you kind of like go, oh, it's going. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's sort of like a heavy-handedness to um, 
accidental mistakes that are you know on in as part of a show but it turned out that some of them were real and then there was stuff that was so <laughs> subtle that was all deliberate and planned and yeah it was it was just this absolutely amazing it's not a car crash because it was just really well um it was just really good it was just really entertaining uh, night and it was kind of like he's sort of a master of I say he's a master of chaos but like like one you know I just I, I relate a lot to what he does because um, there are sort of like elements that he does that um, that I do and then you and you and you look at it and you kind of like go oh wow yeah I really love that and I like that and it's sort of um, as a completely unique individual comedian like myself, uh, it's very rare to find another act that ticks all the boxes that you mm. look for in something. And Phil really does it for yeah. me. And when you do, he's he's ripped you off. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he's ripped me off. No, the, <laughs> well, I've got to do. I've got to do always be comedy on uh, tomorrow night, which is yesterday night for all you listeners. Um, <laughs> down in Kennington and the last time I did it was just before oh it's in person it's not online no I'm doing it I'm doing an actual I'm turning ah, up in wow. person, I'm doing it. and the last time I did always be comedy I think was in February or March to 2020 and the lineup was uh me uh Johnny Vegas and Phil Ellis and it was like <laughs> what, do what, what do you mean diversity uh <laughs> It's like you've probably not a great booking policy. You've booked three identical acts, right? <laughs> and then what was good about it was when you put us all next to each other, you can see how different we are. Right. Um, but on paper, it's like, yeah, <laughs> three guys that have a breakdown. <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah, and I remember they phoned up and they said, right, Phil is closing. Uh, would you like to go on before or after Johnny Vegas? And you well, before. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then it's weird that Johnny Vegas is like the middle act. <laughs> well, Phil was Phil was headlining. Johnny Vegas, I think, was sort of like dropping by to do new material, and then it's like well, they don't have an opener, and I was like, well, I'll do it if I can get if I can if I can be on a bill with them two. Yeah, yeah. And also, that's what I was being offered. <laughs> I'm not like <laughs> I'll only do it if I headline, but it's also. Um, Oh, do I want to be on in? Do I want to be on after Johnny Vegas? Yeah. No, because whether he, because he he can you know he can he can go either way, right? And uh, regardless of what he does on stage, you kind of like don't want to be on. You want a nice interval afterwards. Yeah. I can't remember I was listening to something recently and they were talking about in the I guess 90s early 2000s late 90s early 2000s um Lee Evans would show up at glee clubs right he'd always do the middle spot and then he'd basically do like because he'd be coming on doing like a warm-up for his tour or something he'd go out Every, everyone usually knew he was coming like it was rumored and so there was a bit of a yeah, it's Lee Evans is on. Or it was even on a mailing list, maybe, saying Lee Evans is on in the middle. And he'd be on in the middle so as not to try and, like... So he could still have a comedy night around it. So basically, you'd have an opening act, Lee Evans would do his tour show in the middle. So rather than 20 minutes, we'd end up doing, like, an hour, an hour and a half. And then there'd be a break, and then you'd have a headliner come out. And, when, and all the audience had left. <laughs> 
But, why but that's also the thing, isn't it? Because you, know, <laughs> uh, you ask, when Johnny does 20, he does 40. And yeah. It's kind of like, why would you want to follow that? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, I well, Lee Evans. That's one of the things. Lee Evans retired, didn't he? Like, like not that long ago, five years ago, maybe. Mm. And I just remember it was like he was getting ready for his final tour, and you'd see just comedians, uh, like posting pictures on Facebook, guys. <laughs> um, and it was all kind of like, oh, I've just gigged with Lee Evans, and it was kind of like, well, will will I be at a gig? I wonder where Lee Evans is. And no, no well, I wasn't. But um, yeah, it was like one of those things where you kind of like go, "Oh my god, this is an absolute megastar who's popping up and doing these like little gigs over London and around the country." And uh, yeah, it was exciting stuff. Very exciting. Anyway, you're listening to Fan Club. My name's Nick Helm. <laughs> this <laughs> is Daniel Metcalf. Uh, this is Five Star Family Fan Size Fan Club, and uh, we're at the earlier time of exactly the same time as usual for you. And, um, uh, this feels a bit a, different. I haven't had time to make myself a coffee or anything. It does feel a bit different. We've, um, our, our hand has been pushed. Is that, is that the yeah. phrase? Our hand's been pushed. Um, but, you know, we're making it, the best thing about this show is that we're making the best out of a terrible situation. Every week. Every week. Uh, yeah, and so this week is no exception. Um, well, we're 13 minutes into a two hour window. Let's get the show started, I suppose. Uh, sorry if I've upset anyone about my uh, uh, controversial views on comedy. Um, get I used just, to it. Uh, get used to it. Get used to it. Uh, uh, go back in the uh, <laughs> go back in the archive and uh, listen to my other uh, opinions. Uh, and you know it won't be that I'm, I can't talk today. I just think this would be this is an awful lesson. <laughs> but we only get we only really get press on this show if uh, someone else who's more famous comes on and tells tells a story that's already been in the press for ten years. Johnny Vegas tells a story uh, that was in his autobiography, and then they they uh, print about that in the press. You know, just what have you not read his autobiography? <laughs> I mean, just like just print extracts. Or Jason Manfred uh, drives a van. That, yeah. got, that got in the papers. Yes, that was a year yeah. ago. This is almost a year ago now. God, it is too. So we just right need, to, need to just get on with our lives. Speaking of getting on with our lives. Yeah. Uh, what have you been a fan of this week? I... Uh... I tell you what I did watch. I also watched a couple of films. In fact, one I'll say because we've talked about it slightly in the past. On Netflix, I noticed that Young Guns Two was on, and I'd recently watched Young Guns, and I went, "Oh yeah, I'm up for a bit of Young Guns Two. It's great." I don't know for a film that's not. I don't. I don't feel like those films are fondly remembered, and I was really struck by how much I really, really liked it. It's just you go, but partly. I mean, I'm sure there's a nostalgia element because lots of the lines in it. I knew were coming. So there's an element of that to it. But it was like, for films that, I mean, I think are almost like seen as quite, I mean, I guess it's quite a silly franchise in some ways, but I don't know. It just feels like no one talks about that film in 2021, but us. 
And I was I was really struck by. I was going, it's good. It's really good. What's interesting about Young Guns, and because I watched Mission Impossible um, the other week, and I'm working my way through the Mission Impossible film. So what's interesting about Young Guns is that Young Guns One and Young Guns Two. Young Guns One is a standalone movie. Yeah. That uh, requires no sequel. Mm-hmm. It's got an ending. And it's yeah. got an epilogue, even almost to be like. Yeah. And this is what happened to all the characters. Yeah, they literally only tell half the story. It's like they're saving the other half of the story for a sequel, but the film doesn't really like indicate that they're setting up a sequel. Hmm. It feels like it's just a standalone movie. And then they do get a sequel, and the sequel is so glossy and slick, it feels like a different beast. But and it's and it's kind of like, you know, uh, is it Dermot Mulroney that's in it? And young guns, mm. and uh, and he is so grubby looking. Yes, is he, is he Stinky Pete? I think he might be. Yeah, it's called, oh, Stinky Pete, the character in Toy Story too. He's. Oh, um, I'm not a, sure. So he's like this really grubby character who's sort of like he, and they're all dirty. They're all cowboys. Like the color palette is just all almost one color of brown. Yes, and um, uh. And the characters are all filthy. And then you've got Dermot Moroni, who's just absolute filth. And then a couple of years later, you've got Young Guns 2. And the colours are all like ambers and blues. And they and you've got like, I think in the first one, you had Jack Palance. And in the second one, who was like a huge cowboy star. Hmm. And then the second one, you've got, uh, and Jack Palance is in it. And it was before City Slickers. So it was before he got an Oscar for playing Curly in City Slickers. And sort of like, doing a pastiche on his cowboy characters. It was almost like this is the end of his career. This is his swan song, is Young Guns, where he comes in and sort of like passes the baton to a new generation. Yeah. And, it's so, and I don't even think Young Guns probably did much for Jack Palance's career, except for then he was in Batman. And then the year after, it's just like, oh, no, he got an Oscar for City Slickers. Hmm. Um, and then in the sequel, you've got like uh, James Coburn, um, Who's in it? And then to sort of like counterbalance Dermot Mulroney, you've got Christian Slater, who is sort of like uh, he's like at his Christian Slater peak. Yes. Where you want you want a supporting character to come along and really fucking shake things up and act like he's the lead, then you put Christian Slater in the film. You know, it's about the same time as Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and um, and I just think that together they're these great films. And uh, t- Tom Cruise has a tiny little cameo, I think, in... It's not even a cameo. He was on set one day. I can't remember what he was filming. He was filming something else. And he was, like, good mates with Emilio Estevez. And he was on set for Young Guns, I think. And at the end, uh, he's, like, one of the first people to get shot um, uh, during the standoff when they're in the building at the end of right. But I also heard that he was in the second one, so maybe he's like the first guy to get shot uh, in the second one when the camp that they're sleeping in uh, gets infiltrated. But anyway, it's this crossover period where Emilio Estevez was this huge star in the 80s. Uh, Like, there's no one bigger than Emilio Estevez. And then all of a sudden, he did Loaded Weapon and Mighty Ducks. And then Emilio Estevez's career sort of like... I remember seeing... I remember Mighty Ducks being a huge hit and it had sequels. And I remember Loaded Weapon being something that I saw in the cinema and not quite being good as Hot Shots. Yeah. Or Naked, and a long way off from being as good as Naked Gun. 
but I still really enjoyed it. And it was like, that was sort of it for Emilio Estevez. It really was. And those films felt like, Mighty Ducks especially, and Loaded Weapon, kind of feel like they're films by someone who's kind of on a downward trajectory. And yet, yeah. it just feels like a year earlier, he's one of the biggest stars. Yeah, he was huge in it. And then you've got this crossover period where Tom Cruise, who was filming something nearby, has a no line. You don't even see his face. He's sort of in uh, a background shot of Young Guns. He'd done Top Gun. And then you get into Mission Impossible, where, which, what year was that, 95? 96, I think. 96. So you've got Mission Impossible, which is a few years after that. And I mean, the rest of us pops into it. And um, although, yeah, you kind of like, go, you know, we talked last week and you go, it's a mid-90s uh, cast of uh, who would be in a Mission Impossible ensemble, you know. Hmm. But in actual fact, it's almost too late for Amelia Estevez to be convincing as one of the main team. Yeah, and it felt, I remember thinking it, it was more like a comeback, even though it didn't materialise that way. But the, the assumption was, oh, Amelia Estevez, cool. Yeah, cool. I he thought it. it was sort of like a comforting cameo. Yes. You know, where you go, oh, it's good that he's in it. And then when he dies, it's sort of like one of the least surprising things because you like go, well, of course he's not going to be in the whole thing. <laughs> but and so it's like this weird sort of because Tom Cruise is so famous, yeah, and uh, and he has been for thirty years. It's kind of like you just assumed that he was always famous, yeah. but in actual fact, in the eighties, early nineties, I would argue that Amelia Estevez was much more famous. Yeah. And also then, I think, but then Amelia Estevez also did uh, men at work and free Jack. And he was, he was doing a lot of shit at the beginning of the nineties. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's it. And maybe Young Guns <laughs> 2 was like a sequel to a hit, but maybe he was already on the, the downward trajectory. I think now though, you think of Amelia Estevez when people talk about him, if they talk about him at all, it's almost a bit of a punchline, as they often talk about people who are no longer MIG megastars. They talk about them in sort of as if they've kind of they were never very good. No. I mean, when you watch it, you go, "He's great. He's so I, charismatic in him." I don't. I don't think that's true with the really rest of us. I think that there's a generation of people that maybe a couple of years younger than us that grew up with the Mighty Ducks films and yeah. think of him as the guy that kind of did straight to video sports comedies yeah. sub cool runnings disney sports yeah. comedies right kids based disney films so there's that but i also think that because his brother is charlie sheen it's kind of like you've and his dad is martin sheen you've got like this barometer and he went into directing and and he directed men at work which although is not a great film um it's kind of like a, a, th a thing for him to cut his teeth on and to get started. And, and he, you know, he's consistently made films. Um, and I think that's kind of like the right thing to do where he was like, right, I'm going to change careers here. It's a very brave thing to do. And for him, it was sort of, you know, it's like he didn't take his dad's name because he didn't want to cash in on it. So he's always gone like the hard route. And in a way, it's kind of like at the time when I saw Mission Impossible and Amelia Estevez pops up, you're kind of like, um, oh, it's Amelia Estevez. You sort of take it for granted a bit. But now when you look back on it, uh, especially because we've watched Young Guns and Young Guns 2, and like you say, 
Amir Westwood is so good in those films. He's in, he, they're all good in those films. That you know, they're they're all they're all brilliant. Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond mm. Phillips, they're all brilliant. Uh, Amir Westwood is so charismatic. He's so funny. It's such an interesting take on a cowboy. He's Billy the Kid, mm. and I think that a route that people would go is like a Clint Eastwood kind of route. Yeah, and he's just like he's like making jokes and he's laughing all the time and he's kind of like a psychopath and it's just like this really great interpretation of that character in both of the films mm. and like when we re-watched the Mission Impossible the other week it was literally like as soon as he comes on screen it's just like oh yeah whereas at the time I think it was like oh, it, him yeah but now it's just kind of like those sort of like Amelia Westerville's performance that are dotted around you kind of like they're like uh, they're like treasures, you know. Yes, yeah. Because he's so good. Um, uh, I anyway, I like I I love him. But yeah, yeah, Young Guns Two is really. I think it's such a weird film because it's a sequel where it tells the second half of the story, but it's just like you must have been really fucking banking on that first film going. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they yeah. saved so much of the story for a sequel that potentially wasn't going to happen. And then they, it's, do you know what I mean? Yes. Especially when it plays like, like you say, the first one plays with like an epilogue, like, yeah, that's, uh, and that's the end of the film. And that's what happened to all the characters, the end. It's not like to be continued. It's not got that vibe at all at the end. It's very much like that's done, done in one. That's the movie. And, and, when they, and when they did get like the first one, it feels really gritty. It's sort of like, have you ever seen the Long Riders? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got that sort of quality. Only it's much better than the Long Riders. I feel like the Long Riders is really baggy. Long Riders is a film uh, by Walter Hill, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of a gimmicky film where Stacy Keach is in it with his brother. Um, the uh, what's Kung Fu called? David Carradine. The Carradines. The Carradines are in it. Um, The Quades are in it. Yes. Uh, And basically they just went through and they found all of these sets of brothers and they cast them all as a big gang of brothers. And it's sort of like this, it's got like this 80s, like, so you've got like this, it's it's like, um, it's like the transitionary 70s to 80s sort of quality of a movie. Do you know what? It really is. Now you're saying it, and I can actually... That is a lot like Young Guns or something. It has a really similar aesthetic and everything to yeah. it. Yeah, and and I think Young Guns, what was that, 88? Or... Yeah, 88, I think, yeah. And, uh, so I think it was after Breakfast Club, and um, and you've got kind of like... It, it still feels like it's the 70s, 80s kind of aesthetic. And I guess they didn't really... I think the Western had pretty much died in Hollywood. And then there were like four or five big Westerns that got made in the mid-80s. And I guess Young Guns was sort of like the... And you can sort of like follow the through line where you've got Young Guns and then you've got like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where it's not quite because Kevin Costner isn't young like that but then they've got like christian slater and stuff in it and then disney went like we're making a three musketeers movie and three musketeers feels very much like we've got half the cast of young guns in it and we're also doing sort of a sequel to robin hood yeah you know if this is our we're gonna have we're gonna have uh we're not gonna have brian adams we're gonna have brian adams plus 
Rod Stewart and, and Sting and Sting. Yeah, it's it's kind of like Disney saw Robin and Prince Snoopy and went like we'll do we'll do like a, a non-official sequel to that. So there's like this through line. But then just going back to so Young Guns is sort of like this uh, 70s 80s um, cowboy aesthetic where they're not really making cowboy films. And Young Guns Two comes along and it's like it's it's not quite as slick as that, but it feels very kind of like Tony Scott music mm. video kind of influenced. Yeah. Um, and like, but it, it's, it's so, I mean, I don't even, I'm not saying this is an insult. It's so glossy and slick. But it feels contemporary, like yeah. in a way that, With the bon uh, contemporary to 1990 as well. Yeah, like yeah. really like contemporary, modern Western. But what I'm trying to avoid saying is that Young Guns is like an 80s movie and Young Guns 2 is like a 90s movie. Mm. I think Young Guns is like an 80s movie, an early 80s movie. Young Guns 2 is sort of like a mid 80s to yeah to early 90s movie it's kind of like it's not necessarily i think when you look at i i wrote my dissertation on slasher films and you kind of like go the 70s was all about post vietnam war and then the 80s if you follow the friday the 13th of the halloween series they start off one way where they're kind of like all right this is post vietnam this is a watergate this is everything is kind of like very grim and and cynical and then the 80s is all excessive and it's all just like more kills more nudity and then the 90s becomes very sort of like postmodern to the point where in halloween you've got um yeah you've got buster rhymes but they're doing like a a, a reality tv show in it um and then in sort of like, do you know what I mean? Like you've got one series of films that are all sequels to each other, but they adapt through the times. And um, uh, just the aesthetics on, I just think there's only two, they're just these, I think, I don't, I can't understand how Young Guns 1 and 2 got made. They're sort of like this <laughs> enigma. They're like baffling to me because they're so different. And two years apart, only two years apart. They're so different, but they're perfect together. They're like a perfect set. They're not a trilogy. You only need two of them, but they're like this perfect set. And uh, they're just very different from each other, but they tell half a story each. And then I did all of like, this research after I saw Young... We talked about this when I saw Young as before, I'm sure. Mm. But like, I did the research and so much of it is factually accurate in terms of like, you know, the best that they could do with it. You know, um, there's a line in it where they talk about Billy the Kid being left-handed and Billy the Kid says, oh, he's not left-handed, he's right-handed um, or he's ambidextrous. And that comes from the fact that there was a photo of Billy the Kid holding his gun in his left hand um, and uh, everyone just assumed that he was left-handed. But what they weren't taking into account for was that images were flipped. Right. And it's a reverse image. And so they're referencing that it's not just like, oh, Billy the Kid was cool. Uh, let's just like um, like in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they've got Billy the Kid and there's very, it's just like, uh, who would be a cool character from history? They haven't just sort of like gone, well, oh, Billy the Kid is kind of like this outlaw. So let's do it. Let's adapt it all and make it kind of like relevant to 80s teens and kind of like do a, uh, like a, a, a 18 brat pack, you know, an 80s brat pack take on young guns. It's so historically accurate with all of the stuff that's in there that you kind of like go, oh, they've really done their homework, which made me respect the film so much more. It was, ah, they're great. <laughs> young guns too. 
Um, but you watched it. Yeah, no, I thought I thought it was great, and it was it was like you say, very glossy. And even the fact it has like a Bon Jovi theme makes it feel like God. It's such a big movie. It feels like it feels like you're watching a huge summer movie, and that this was perhaps what a summer movie was like in 1990. And also, like you say, Emilio Estevez's laugh is so kind of iconic at the time that it's sampled throughout that song all the time. And it's like you would know, yeah, it's uh, Billy the Kid. It's almost like it's it seeped enough into the pop culture mm. that, that his laugh was kind of an iconic sound in that late 80s, early 90s period. And is now forgotten to history, like the films are. They're not, they haven't sort of survived in that way. And yet you mm. watch them and it feels like, this feels like a big movie, you know. I just thought it was weird. It just feels like you are watching something that in 1990 was probably one of the studio's big like summer movie it was like yes a big we're throwing a lot behind this the first one did well and we're gonna we're gonna throw our lot in with the sequel i remember i was too young my sister went to the cinema and came back and was just like hyped and started getting bon jovi albums and it was like yeah it's got a great soundtrack as well yeah yeah um so right let's play speaking of soundtracks uh, and speaking of being slick as fuck, let's play a uh, game. No, a <laughs> song. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Oh, we're back. And, um,. Uh, great, great to be uh, back in the. We're thirty-six minutes into the show, and uh, it's going, it's flying by, flying by, absolutely um, flying by. So, what have you been a fan of this week, Nick? Um, I did. I have watched a bunch of stuff. I, I started trying to get Letterbox, you know, because. I'd like to just have a record of everything that I've seen, mm. but it's not saving it. Maybe you can talk me through it after we've finished. Okay. But it's not really saving the films that I've seen in the order that I've seen them. And I can't. Oh, that is weird. I think it does it naturally and I, for I, me. I'm, I'm not enjoying the format of it. Um, okay. So I can't really remember what I've seen this week. Um, give me. Uh, oh, yeah. So I watched Mission Impossible 3 this week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Funny enough, uh, going back to Young Guns 2, I saw Mission Impossible 3 at the Odin in Leicester Square and sat in front of me watching it was Christian Slater. Are you joking? No, I was really excited. I was really excited. I saw him go in. Was it the premiere? No, no. It was just like a day. It was like an afternoon show in. Oh, Uh, well, you know why? I think it was when he was doing... One for the Cookies. Yeah, yeah. I think it was at that time. So I guess he was just living in London and I guess his days are free and he's gone, yeah, I'll go and see the new Mission Impossible film. Do you know what? <laughs> you are terrible at um, <laughs> American accents and impressions. But, uh, except for Christopher Lee. But if you'd have done that, if you'd have done that impression, I would have known who you who that was. Thank you. Because it's basically, he's at the time does that impression of, Christian Slater, you think, is someone doing an impression of Jack Nicholson. <laughs> That's yeah. what I always think of. <laughs> so you've got to imagine someone else doing an impression of Jack Nicholson. 
Christian Slater is to Jack Nicholson what the Muppet Babies are to the Muppets. <laughs> um, so, uh, what year was Mission Impossible 3? Oh, what year is it going to be? 2000 and... I was doing comedy, so I reckon 2009? No. 10? No. No. Which is why now I think that it couldn't be Christian Slater... Um, one for the cookies nest it was 2006 can you believe it wow maybe he was filming churchill the where, where the hollywood years the hollywood years um, well maybe he was do you know maybe <laughs> maybe he was um right so uh, mission impossible 3 um it's in a way it's better than all of the other mission impossibles right so which but, one three is three the J- one I, the thing J- i really J. remember abrams because i was always m-i-i-i-i which i liked <laughs> right yeah um, but let's not talk too much about this. No. But um, what I'd say is the first one is uh, classic De Palma. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is John Woo. And without the slow motion, the film, it's like two hours, 10 minutes. And without the slow motion, the film would honestly be about 70 minutes long. <laughs> um, it's um, uh, the second film is absolutely awful, but. I, I, but in my heart, I can't really blame. I think John Woo, the slow motion is awful. Yeah. The doves are stupid. I think yeah. John Woo has aged incredibly badly in terms of what yeah. is cool. It and when you Doug Ray Scott from being Wolverine. Yeah, and you're watching it, and he doesn't even have a character in it, and he must have been absolutely fucking furious. It's such a, it's so rubbish. Um, uh, it's kind of like, it's like. It's like um, it's like the the presenters of Top Gear have uh, got together and they've made what they think is the coolest film ever made. Right. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? That's Mission Impossible Two, <laughs> and um, it's it's so sort of like. Whereas in the first one, there's set pieces that are really tense and they're really kind of uh, standalone set pieces that get put together in bricks to make this you know really tense movie um the second one is like there's no plot there's no characters there's i don't even know who ethan hunt is um and then with the third one they've kind of like gone um uh well we'll give him some sort of character and we'll give him some personal stakes in it and you know even though they've tried to do that previously and it's sort of like it all works and you kind of like go, technically, this is the best one where it's all coming together. They've got like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. He's great. And it's all sort of like coming together. But it's in my heart, it, it, nothing is as good as the first one so far. Right. So it's kind of like you've got maybe the first one is like a four star movie. Then you've got like a one or two star movie. And then you've got like a solid three where you go, there's elements of Tom Cruise's character is the most clear in this film. His hair is the optimum length. You've got a (laughs) really decent bad guy, but the set pieces aren't tense. Is that Um, Michelle Monaghan? Is that that one? Yeah, she's She's great. I love her. She's brilliant. And and yeah, there's some really good stuff in it. Um, Anyway. So that's that. And I also watched Raising Cain. And um, anyone that's seen Raising Cain, put your hands up. Uh, Raising hands, more like. And um, what I would say is that there's two edits of Raising Cain, isn't there? There's the official theatrical release uh, of Raising Cain, which is Brian De Palma. 
1990. Yeah. And then uh, some guy did a fan edit of it, which was he, he found the original scripts. And even though there weren't any deleted scenes, he reorganized the um, yeah the, the existing film, yeah. footage. He, he chopped up the film and he put it in the order that it was presented in the script as best he could and put it online. And Brian De Palma saw it and he said, right, um, that's great. Uh, and he wrote personally to the DVD company and he said, um, and he phoned them up, I think, and he just said, oh, this is Brian De Palma. And they were like, fuck, goes, <laughs> there's this online thing and it's and it's really good. And it's basically the film that I wanted to make. So that should be an official extra on the DVD. And then I think they put a bit of money into it and cleaned it up and made it like all super slick. And basically, um, I can't, even though I've seen the theatrical cut of, I, uh, of Raising Cain, for the life of me, I cannot work out why it's edited that way it's absolutely insane it feels like normally these films would be the other way around like the studio would go no you're trying to be a bit too arty here you're trying yeah. to you're trying to do things but it's like they've gone in and made it much more confusing whereas when you watch the like the fan edit version of it it's just more like yeah yeah, yeah got it got it <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like, so, um, and I, even when I was watching the original, I was like, going, well, it must start with this scene, surely. Mm. The, the film is about John Lithgow. Um, there's spoilers, but I mean, it's more about, like, I had to do a thing the other day and I have this, uh, and I had this, uh, um, uh, I wrote this jingle and it's for TV. Like I'm doing a bit in a, in a panel show where I come on and I do a, I do a game that I've invented, right? Um, like a quiz show, right? And I've written a jingle. And in my script that I've written, the jingle gets played like 20 times, right? Uh, and the producers are like going, yeah, but can we just, I mean, the jingle is 40 seconds long. So every time you play the jingle, that means that, you know, it eats up 40 seconds. And I had to say to the producer. That's the joke. Um, you're looking at the jingle as something that's getting in the way of content yeah. when in actual fact the jingle is content. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like you can't shortcut that. It has to be like whatever it, it you know, that exactly what you say. It's the joke, but it's kind of like you're looking at that like, well, once we get through the jingle, then we can do the thing. It's just like, or we can cut the jingle in the edit. And you go, no, no, no. That That is what I have. I've written the jingle. I'm going to stand on stage next to the jingle while the jingle is playing. That is my content. That is what I'm going to yeah. do. And Brian De Palma was like saying, oh, it's all trickery and it's all like camera tricks and it's all kind of like you can see his process and you go, yeah, that is the content. That is my film, is you watching all of these camera tricks and everything like that. But when you watch it, for the life of me, I cannot fucking work out you know, it's a film about a guy with multiple personality disorder and he's a murderer. Mm -hmm. And that is the twist that comes halfway through the film in the script. But in the movie, in the theatrical, in the theatrical cut, they put the reveal of John Lithgow being a murderer in the first scene. So it opens with him uh, uh, either murdering someone or, or knocking someone out. Yeah. And all the way through it, you know he's a bad guy. Whereas, go on. I was going to say also throughout the film, you've got scenes in it 
which are dream sequences and things, which when you watch the fan edit, you go, right, that's a dream. But when you're watching it all interspersed with different parts of it, you start going, so when's that happened? When's this happened? Yeah. It becomes like it's it's using dream logic at a point where you're supposed to, you've got no solid thing to put a dream on. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got well, no solid light timeline to put where the dream is happening. And it's also treating the dream like it's really happening. Yeah. Because that's all the footage they've got. So when when Brian De Palma, he panicked when he was putting the edit together. He did some test screenings that didn't work. And so he put everything in a chronological order. Um, so wherever it happened in time is where it comes in the film. And it's kind of like, no, you're meant to be, it's, it's meant to be like a bait and switch. It's meant to be kind of like Psycho, because it's all Hitchcock, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be like Psycho, where you're following his his wife as the main character for f- forty minutes, and then halfway through, John Lithgow is the main character. Whereas yeah. in in the theatrical edit, John Lithgow is always the main character. And when you're watching it, you're going, "Why am I haven't seen the fan edit yet? I'll watch that for next week." But you're watching it, and you're going, "Why on earth do it this way? It's mental." Speaking of why on earth do it this way, the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Abs. Right. Um, okay, we'll do one of our famous uh, one-word reviews. Okay. Oh, what's my word? Five, four, three, two, one. Properly. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> one word. Oh uh, yeah, I, said, I, I took the space out. Did you have a hyphen in the middle? No. Wow. It's just all one word. Right. Um, I loved it. It's exactly, it's like a course correction film. And it. And in a way, I'm always, I was struck by it after. I really liked it too. I thought it was great. And I was struck at the end how it shouldn't work either because all it's doing is constantly doing course correction. And it's like, it's almost like, it's like it's doing, it, it's, it's like, making up for the last film and going this is what you're supposed to do it makes and it feels sense. almost like it's it's there's not it feels like there's doesn't feel like there's enough to do your own film and yet it's really satisfying it makes up for the last film in the first 10 minutes right yeah and then it's got two hours to just enjoy it and the jokes are brilliant like it's a funnier film than most comedies mm. right it's um it's and I find it as a comedian, I find it really interesting the way humor is used in non comedic films or not necessarily non comedic films. Like, comedy is a um, uh, is a shade that you can use uh, as part of your palette as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. You can use humor. Um, but this is sort of like a superhero movie, but it's basically it's a, it's a $200 million comedy. It's fucking great. The cast is brilliant. Um, Idris Elba is just phenomenal in it. Yeah, I don't think I've seen him better. In I, the film. Th- I-, I thought he was perfect. And like, I'm not a fan, but I've 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 spent a year and a half watching all the fucking Sky adverts of uh, him selling Sky Cinema, uh, and and he's just on every ad break when I'm just trying to work out who's gonna win the chase, right? Um, <laughs> And he just pops up in every advert break. And so to go to the cinema, to actually pay 
20 quid or whatever it was to go and see him at the cinema. I was like, I get him for free every fucking five minutes. He was so good in it. I absolutely loved it. And what I fucking loved the most, no, not the, I just loved the whole thing. It was so dark. It was so gory and sort of mean spirited. Um, I also thought it said some really sort of like profound things about relationships. I thought yeah. that Harley Quinn monologue was, yeah, it was in character, but it was also really beautiful. And, um, uh, and it was just really, and also, you know, uh, looking at all of these franchises that have had kind of like all sorts of um, uh, kind of like uh, uh, gender politics uh, put into, identity politics thrown into, thrown into all of these films lately, where it's very kind of like, um, front and center. I thought this film was just, um, it was diverse and uh, accessible without remotely being heavy handed. Mm. I thought that, it, I thought that the cast was incredible. Um, and the thing that I, 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 what I loved about it was the fact that there are some returning characters from the original Suicide Squad. And I just really just did, I, it's one of the only films I've ever walked out of. Uh, was the first Suicide Squad. And uh, there's returning characters in this, and you really care about them straight away. <laughs> it's like when Captain Boomerang comes back, you're like, I like him. They just handled him <laughs> great. I think Captain Boomerang is one of the only things that actually it works like 75% in, in, the, in the original. And so Captain Boomerang in this, Jai Courtney, it's just like, you know, Jai Courtney's in a superhero film, no thanks. And then all of a sudden you go like, oh, he's brilliant in it. And Jai Courtney's great. And then it makes you all of a sudden go, oh, maybe I've kind of like given him like a bit of a hard time. Um, uh, you know, he's used for evil a lot of the time, like inappropriately as like Terminator Genesis as a Michael Bean replacement. You go, he didn't look anything like him. What's the point? What's the point in trying to get everyone to, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I just thought, I thought it made you really care. I thought Rick Flagg was like, crazily, he's one of the least charismatic, interesting <laughs> characters in the first film. It's kind of, who gives a fuck about Rick Flagg in the first film? In the second one, he has like three laugh out, mo laugh out loud moments and his character's brilliant. He sort of like keeps the team together um, and you end up really caring about Rick Flagg. And it's just like, that's insane, right? Yeah, and it is because you can barely. I know that character because I know that's a character who's from the comics, and he's one of the big characters in the comics. And I know he's in the first Suicide Squad movie. But when you watch it, you go, "Oh yeah, yeah, he was in it too, wasn't he?" That's how you feel. Yeah, <laughs> like it's like you've forgotten he was even in the film. Well, when I it's saw, like, the... oh yeah, he was in it as well, wasn't he? When yeah, I saw yeah. when I saw the trailer for the Suicide Squad, this new one, and he's in it, you go, "You've brought him back." <laughs> he would be one of the easiest people to just ignore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the fact that they've actually not just brought him back and then got rid of him in the first two minutes, the fact that, no spoilers, but like, um, the fact that they've brought him back and he's got so many sort of like, um, he's because he's not a superhero either, right? And so they've brought him back and he's got so many standout moments in the cast that big. Everyone gets a moment to shine, basically. Mm. It's really well put together. It's and I just think it's so funny. It's dark. It's sick, but it's also got a really like warm heart to it. Yeah, 
I feel actually now we start talking about it, I've realised there's lots I could say about it. So I might talk more about it next week because, yeah, there's a lot about it that it was a real experience watching it as well. Like what I was thinking almost minute to minute of like, well, what's this going to be like? And then things happening and I was going, that's a really good idea. And I felt like it kept, there were times, uh, but mainly usually at the start where I was a little bit kind of on the fence about it. And then what something had happened and it would earn another 10 minutes. And it did that all the way to the end. Like I kept going, I'm uh, a bit, yeah, maybe. And then something had happened. I go, love that. And then there would be, and then the next time I was like wavering a bit going, eh, you know, something else had happened. I'd go, love that, love that, love that. Bit. I, th- I, I know what you mean. Um, I, I do know, I, I know what you mean, but um, I think I'm a bit more passive in terms of as an audience member. And I went into this, having seen like a lot of, I hadn't read any reviews, hadn't watched any reviews, but I went into it knowing that there was a bit of a positive buzz about it. Yeah. And I was thinking, this is going to be great. Mm. And and it was. And that, that rare, hey, for a start, that <laughs> rarely happens, going into a film, expecting it to be good and it being good, yeah. right? Sometimes you're surprised because you think it's going to be shit and it's not. And sometimes you go in and it's like, it's disappointing. And this just fulfilled all my expectations and exceeded them in a way. And I'm not a massive fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. No, I'm not, I, which I think is, I'm similar, that I kind of, and there's bits of it where I kind of go, this is a bit too much Guardians of the Galaxy. And that's what I was expecting. And that's that was a bit of it I was slightly dreading. And it it wasn't what I was expecting at all. This felt like um, he'd had to, this felt like the guy, this felt like the trauma guy. This felt like the guy that directed mm. Super that was doing like a mainstream movie yeah. uh, without like losing a lot of his edge. I thought, yes. I thought that's what was, that, that's what was really good about it. But also um, I, 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 almost the same experience as, as you, but it's sort of like, I'd go, wow, that's incredible. And then I would find myself sort of like maybe drifting off a little bit and kind of like, it would not lose me, but I would kind of like maybe I had something on my mind and then all of a sudden it would suck me right back in again. And a bit. Of, so it's like you where you're kind of like actively going, I'm not sure if I'm enjoying this right now. Now I am. It would be me kind mm. of like without realizing I wasn't giving it my hundred percent. And then all of a sudden I'd go, Oh, right. Wow. Fucking. And I think like that, you're right. Every 10 minutes, there's something that sort of like drags you back in, but it never sort of like, I just found myself like kind of like feeling that there were like little little sags in between in between the the bits but uh I mean it was so smart and funny and it was just you you didn't want to laugh at some of the stuff and some of the stuff just had me like laughing for a minute <laughs> in the cinema and um and I loved going to the cinema as well um yeah, it was brilliant. And the other thing that I did was I went back and I watched the original Comic-Con footage from the original Suicide Squad movie. Okay. To try and get an idea of what the film that David Ayer was trying to deliver. And when you watch that original video without any of the uh, day glow and the, uh, and the Bohemian Rhapsody and all that stuff, hasn't got any of that stuff in it. It's kind of like this you can see that it's a very dour gritty film and i think even if it was david air it wouldn't be like a fun watch yeah and i think that no matter what they tried to do was they tried to edit a very serious gritty movie and make it into a fun movie yeah. by doing 
patch jobs and reshoots and using the soundtrack when in actual fact this feels like it's the film that they kind of wanted originally yes exactly uh, and, and also just like it's what they should have done originally as well it's like this is exactly what you should have done this is exactly what you should have done originally and it's weird that they didn't and um or what i would say is i'm a big fan of the movie the joker or is it just called joker um, I'm not sure. I think it's Joker, isn't it? Just so I'm a big fan of Joker, and I'm a big fan of Wonder Woman, and I'm a big fan of uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. And I would say, in terms of just going in and enjoying a film, this was just the best DC movie that they've made. Hmm. It's up there with Joker, but it's a, a, an entirely different experience. And they're not within the same universe. It's yeah. so much fun. I loved it. And it's flopping. So if you think you might be interested, you should go and see it because this Is film, it really? I yeah, think it was doing, doing really well. well. No, it made 23 million in its opening weekend. Okay. Which All is right. shit. And, right. um, um, uh, and I think that this film definitely deserves a sequel. The first film, <laughs> when, they, when they announced this, it's just like, what the fuck are you doing making another Suicide Squad? <laughs> No, you see it, you go, make loads of these. These are brilliant. <laughs> okay, we'll just do one quick bit of fan mail, then we'll get yeah. Steve one. Uh, yeah. Is it say he's in the waiting room? I'm scrolling up fan mail soon. Yes, absolutely. Don't worry, Irene. God, you're <laughs> on it. You're really on it. Um, fan mail. Afternoon, Nick Nathaniel. George Metcalf. George Metcalf. Oh, bad bollocks. <laughs> I knew there was a different voice for it. Natalie, Brian, Christopher, and perhaps even Patrick and Paul, if they're about. And Irene. As always, I'm loving the show. To be honest, even... To be honest, even more so than normal at the moment. I think the female girls you've had on recently seem to really get the fan club spirit. Maybe time to move up to a six-star status. You don't like those pesky male guests that we have that don't get the concept at all. No names mentioned. Um, I went. I went to see the new Benedict. Went to see the new Benedictine comes in batches film, The Courier, last night. It was perfect. It's a really good old school slow burner of a spy film. Definitely recommend it if you enjoy the words of John Lee I also rewatched the Tim Burton Batman films and totally agree with Nathaniel. George Metcalf's opinion. I can take or leave Batman, but love Batman Returns. I think we both said that. Mm. However, I couldn't help thinking that if I was picking someone from Beetlejuice to play Bruce Wayne Batman, I'd have gone with Alec Baldwin. I think we said that too. Fair point. I've also been thinking that Stephen Graham, I thought you were going to say Stephen Baldwin, would be perfect <laughs> Wolverine. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, dad, have that. Yeah. I mean, he's in many ways uh, not, he's like a contemporary um, uh, Bob Hoskins. Mm. Uh, and do either of you have any other dream castings for iconic roles anyway all the best to you and yours and love once more from Tom in Tampere Finland hello Tom that's lovely thank you thank you um, do you know what it's not a dream casting but I thought um, uh, what's the wrestler who plays uh, Peacemaker in Suicide Squad oh John Cena I thought he would be a perfect Superman yeah, he's another one who's great, isn't he? He's another. Anyway, we can't keep he's, talking he's about this. <laughs> he would be a, it, but he would be a perfect Superman. <laughs> he's sort of like non-complicated. I think the problem that they do with Superman is they make him too complicated. Just make him non-complicated. He's a guy that turns up. John Cena, he'd be great. Uh, right, let's get um, uh, let's play a song and get our guest on. Yes, he's not in the room yet. Actually, he is. Oh, he's joined now. <laughs> this is a real fucking roller coaster for us <laughs> and you. <laughs> 
Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're back, we're back. Uh, we're back live. We're not live, we're pre-recorded. And I am, uh, we're in the studio. We're not in the studio. Uh, I'm in my office, I suppose. And uh, Matt is in what we tentatively call his washroom. And we're joined now in the, uh, we're in the clubhouse. That's what we are. We can be anywhere we want. We're in the fan club, treehouse clubhouse. Uh, and we're joined now by actor, writer, uh, stand-up comedian, uh, and uh, now uh, sitcom creator or... Co- yeah. co-writer no uh, let's say creator, creator uh, creator uh steve bajaya hello how are you doing hey guys thanks so much for having me i'm very good thank you uh thanks for coming on thanks for thanks for being on um so you are uh, currently um not you are but you are you're currently in the uh sitcom buffering that's over on uh itv uh two yeah uh, that's on at the moment is that right okay. I gave myself a role. Yeah, I think if you create a sitcom, it'd be silly not to put yourself in it, wouldn't it? Um, it would. Oh, was that on purpose? I couldn't tell. When you first showed up, I thought, oh, it's like a cameo. But then I went, oh, no, he's in every episode. He's oh, yeah, no, no. It very much so. And, and the role gets bigger. Um, because the, the commissioners were quite clear in the first script that they weren't keen on the character and they wanted to be a small <laughs> one. Um, but the thing about that is they don't notice the, it, it get bigger slowly through the rest of the series. And uh, by the episode six, they were like, oh, we like that thing, guy. I'm like, yeah, well, there you go. Um, and also I found out that I got paid per episode. So I was quite keen to make sure I did appear at least one line in each episode <laughs> just to get that fee. That is good. Do you get paid per, per episode or per shooting day? No, per episode. That's what I found out. So I was like, well, as long as... I mean, you get a bonus for the shooting game. It's, it's negligible compared to the... so. So really what mattered was making sure I had one line in the episode. That's really good. I mean, smart. The the, the producer tried to cut that first line in the episode one because actually it's one of the least important lines in the whole thing. And we were were pretty tight for time. We're pretty tight for time. And to be honest, some pretty important stuff had to get cut. Um, But I I was not willing to budge. I was absolutely not willing to budge. Of course not. And and I know uh, from a writer's point of view that you do have a lot of sway with the execs. So that is uh, very good. It's very good that you managed to do that. I think that your character is intrinsic in that first episode. I appreciate that, Nick. I think. I also think it, it has to be because otherwise it you. wouldn't make sense later that you become. Because otherwise you just show up. You well, you need to have something that makes you memorable to be exactly. Hey, it's that guy. Yeah, it's the guy. It's the sort of dweeby little nervous guy, and now he's <laughs> even more nervous, and he's in it more. <laughs> It is amazing that we've talked about buffering for almost five minutes and not mentioned uh, Ian Ian Sterling yet. (laughs) That is how I like to do it. I like to almost ignore the fact that he's the star of the show and exclusively talk about my character, Finn. Well, exactly. You're building the part up so much that next series, you'll probably be the star of it and no one will have noticed. Hey, if we get another series, you you will not believe how small Ian's role is going to be. That's... That's... when you're a part in a thing, you are meant to see your character from the point of view of, well, I might not be the lead, but I still have a life outside of my scenes. So, and we had, we had on one thing I did, there was an actor that came along and he would come in and he'd go, uh, I, yeah, I like to think about what my character's up to. And it, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like you're in one scene in this series. And he was like planning out his character's death. Yeah, and it's just kind of like, just say the lines and let's have lunch. Do you know he's, what been, I mean? he's been for coffee with his mum. He's a little bit off. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, all right. But no, it's good that um, 
It's good that you can see the entire thing uh, through the eyes of your character. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Ian is, I, I mean, I should, I should mention Ian Sterling is the star of it and the main draw, some would say. Well, uh, but it is an ensemble, right? It doesn't, it, I thought it'd be more yeah. an Ian Sterling show, but it does feel like the more you go on, it doesn't feel like it's Ian Sterling and friends. No. It's, no, it's, it's kind of. Yeah, it's, it is intentionally an ensemble. And that, to be fair, that was Ian who who, who was keen for that as well. Uh, and yeah, because we've got such a brilliant cast. Like the cast are great. Like Jesse Cave, Rosa, uh, Robson, Paul G. Raymond, um, Elena Sorrell and, uh, and Janine Haruni. They're just all so funny. Um, it seems silly just to have them playing second fiddle. Um, and uh, it, yeah, we were pleased that we did that. Because I think by it's silly, by, I think by the fifth episode, Ian's like not even in the C story. Um, I mean, he's in it. But he's not he's not in the main two stories. And um I think uh yeah, I think we're really that's one thing we're really proud of actually. That the, the, it's the good. I, I think with uh I think with sitcoms as well, the ones that have like the the most longevity are the ones that uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Well like The Office was an ensemble, but I'm also thinking about yeah. stuff like Friends, which yeah. I guess this has stuff in common with because it's kind of like friends for Th- this generation we were very keen not to make that comparison uh in any pre uh because <laughs> ian once on a podcast said oh yeah sort of like uh, the next generation's friends and i was like no do not say that that is you cannot make that comparison but the um, thing so- is i've made that comparison and i'm just an observer so that's fine i mean you might not like saying it out loud but we're all thinking it well, that's nice, but I, I, I think it ultimately isn't. There's a lot of things that make it not the same, um, mainly budget. Um, <laughs> but yeah, of course. It, no, there is but a flat share like element. A flat share element where you've got six people, but it's called buffering, and it's about kind of like that phase in your life where, uh, which is late, which is like mid-30s to, like, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm 40 now, and I bought my first place, what, two years ago? Like I, I was renting up until then. I wasn't doing like flat share stuff, but like it's the reality for most people that yeah. right up into almost your early forties and there's no, no one's like saying it's right or wrong, uh, but it's kind of like you end up having to kind of like put your life on hold as you try and get basics in place. You know? <laughs> I know, and it's a nightmare. It's, it, I don't know if it's a London thing or it's just our generation. Uh, but I, I definitely feel bang smack in the middle of it. Ian, annoyingly, is so successful that he has very much circumvented sure. the buffering stage and has bought a house and is married with a child. Um, so he is... That's why uh, he needs you. He needs you because he's lost such... He's lost touch. He's, he's lost, lost touch he's, with this he's struggle. He's all touch with reality that he's just like, I've got <laughs> an idea. I've got a sitcom, but I need someone to co-create it with me. Should yeah. Me yeah. Now, I first yeah. became aware of Ian... Um, because I was in a children's show called Big Babies back in 2000, uh, 2008 or 2009. And he used to present, uh, the he was in the broom cupboard. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and so he used to present it. My mum used to watch Big Babies. I think we did 10 episodes. And she used to do an impression of him. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Your mum? Yeah. She used to go, oh, it's time for Big Babies. And um, and she didn't know he had a character. He had a dog called Hacker. Yeah. And um, and so my first introduction to Ian Sterling was the fact that I was in a kids show that he presented, uh, that he introduced on TV, and uh, and then he's now you know 
some 12 years later, written a sitcom about being a children's presenter with a yeah. puppet sidekick. And it's the same guy. The puppeteer who's controlling Larry the Lizard in Buffering is the same guy who controlled Hacker. Hacker. Oh, um, really? Which was a nice little, that's a nice little reunion for those two. And also there's so many kids who grew up watching probably Big Babies uh, no. and Ian. <laughs> <laughs> no, kids didn't watch Big Babies. Uh, drug addicts watched Big Babies. Oh, well, it's still a market. It, well, yeah, absolutely. And they still come and see you today, don't they, Nick? They and do, say absolutely. That they <laughs> absolutely. What was the premise of Big Babies, Nick? Just so it was, uh, it was uh, baby bodies that were filmed. Oh, like baby babies <laughs> um, <laughs> with adult heads stuck over them. Like superimposed, uh, wasn't it? Superimposed. It was Spencer Jones, wasn't it? it Spencer, Spencer Jones. It was Spencer Jones and John Reese, who's a director that I've worked with quite a bit. And uh, it was a, like a special effects extravaganza. And I was a glove puppet called May. I don't think I was a glove puppet. I was a I was a cuddly toy, but it was operated by a puppeteer. And because uh, you said he's the one that controls, did you say controls hacking? Yeah, yeah. I think he's a he. He, what what would you say? He operates Hacker. Well, he, yes. yeah, he is He is Hacker. Uh, isn't a way that you say it is a little bit kind of uh, fictionalised where you say, he brings Hacker to life. Yes. Yeah, I guess Controls makes it sound like Hacker's a slight victim of the... Yeah. Uh... Like he's in some sort of <laughs> abusive relationship. Yeah. He, he doesn't let Hacker leave the house. He doesn't let Hacker have a bank account. <laughs> hmm. Poor old hacker. Anyway, yeah. Isn't I was... it, do you know what? I didn't notice till that episode where he gets banged on the head that you go, oh, yeah, you never see him. I yeah. think that's kind of a nice thing. But it hadn't even occurred to me that I'd never seen the guy who's operating it. Yeah, until the very end. And until then you make there. a point. Yeah, until you make a point Exposed. of saying, oh, yeah, we, we haven't seen him. And we, we sort of wrote that and we were like, oh, we never really asked the puppeteer if he minded actually being in it himself. And then just on the day of filming, we were like, oh, do you mind actually? We just realised in this scene, you're, you're in it. Do you mind? And he was like, yeah, I've worn my best shirt. And he was like wearing a really flowery, beautiful shirt. So I, think he, I think he's excited to have his moment in the limelight. You know, he's, he's, he spent so long with his hand up a, a glove. <laughs> oh, well, good for him. Yeah. But it's it's like he's made so many dreams come true through his career that it's nice that you finally managed to make his dreams come true. Well, I, I don't know if it, yeah, I don't know. Let's not ask him. Just that's take okay. the credit. I once did, have you ever done um, that kids' show, Dog Ate My Homework? You know, that panel show on CBBC? No. No, um, no after Big Babies, <laughs> don't let me do kids' TV. <laughs> um, well, basically, I did that once, and Hacker was the guest was the other panellist. So it was me, a child, a child team captain, me, and then a puppet on the team, which is, it was, it's difficult. I think it's harder than model. <laughs> what was um, Hacker? Was Hacker a dog? Hacker was a dog. Is a dog. Still exists. Is um, dog. And there was a moment, there's a live studio audience, all kids and their parents, and there was a moment in between takes where he just got up the puppeteer just got up with Hacker on his hand and just walked around the set. And I just saw about 400 kids just their, their dreams die right in yeah. front of them. and he he couldn't he just couldn't be on the floor for that long no <laughs> so, i mean i'm sure his knees are killing him but it does feel like a cruel moment can yeah, they not call like, like an emergency or yeah you should have like a curtain or something yeah <laughs> one brings a curtain out and he has to and a man leaves and you just have to go oh, it's just some black yeah hacker's gone to the toilet now oh this guy's here as well <laughs> oh he's wearing one of those uh all black morph suits yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then 
and then he gets up and then he just sort of like walks off to the bog with his hands by his side and Hack is just sort of like <laughs> hanging there lifeless and dead but like he's floating through the air I guess what, what's worse is it worse that the kids think Hack has died or that he has been operated by um, 45 year old man um, for, I, I think probably died right yeah because yeah. you know, I got really sad when loads of money got killed on Comet Relief. So, um, if yeah. you can, if you can all remember back that far, guys, uh, loads of money was to Harry Enfield. <laughs> oh my God, fucking hell! How old do you think the characters in your head are? The characters in the show? Um, they are supposed to be late twenties, early thirties. So, like twenty nine. Yeah, twenty nine. Day. But that's about right, isn't it? It's about oh, yeah. right. Yeah, they all sort of are. Ian, I, I think, what's Ian's he in like 33. 33, yeah. Um, yeah, I think they all roughly are that age. So I was absolutely fucking shocked that he was 33. What, you thought he was older? Yeah. Well, that's I couldn't that's fucking home. I couldn't fucking believe it. <laughs> I couldn't fucking believe Well, like I said, he's been presenting stuff for uh, for 12 you know i was aware of him 12 years ago which means he was what 21 when he was doing that yeah he's straight out of uni i think they spotted him at uni and he just literally oh, his first job out of uni but in a broom disgusting <laughs> yeah i mean he's, he's lived a charmed existence he walked straight out of kids tv into love island like he's had a nice he's had a nice life no wonder he can't relate to the real world <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, um, really, uh, congratulations. Well done with all that. How did it, so how did it come about? How did you get the job? Um, it came about because well, I've been writing signals for ages, like just which no one read, um, obviously. Uh, and then Ian got approached by, by well, by a approach company who were just like, do you want to try and make something? He said, Steve knows how to do that. So then he got me involved. And then we did it very slowly. And you know how long these things take. Um, for about three years, we developed it. And then eventually someone said, yeah. Uh, and I remember the moment I got the, the commission, I was in Edinburgh. Uh, it was the second day of Edinburgh and I was feeling pretty low already. Um, what, year in, what year in Edinburgh? 2000 and, uh, it was the most recent Edinburgh, 2019. 19, yeah. Um, and uh, I, was, I was about to get a haircut, right? And I sat, went for my haircut, and Ian rings me and goes, mate, we've got the commission. They've commissioned six episodes. It's going to go out next summer. Um, and then I put the phone down. My life had just changed. I, I couldn't believe the news. And then the hairdresser comes over and goes, right, do you want to come have your haircut now? And I just had to sit in a chair for half an hour and not talk to anybody about this life-changing moment. Uh, and I just, I just wanted to run around and like ring my mum or my girlfriend or whatever. But I just had to, just, the only person I could tell was this bloody hairdresser. And all she said was, I don't really like comedy. And I was like, great. Well, that's the end of that conversation. Were you also furious that you had to do another 24 dates at Edinburgh? Oh, absolutely. And I got a bad, <laughs> I got a bad review that day. Um, um, it was a guy actually who, since he got fired mid festival because he was writing such bad reviews, uh, but well, like negative reviews or they were shit, just bad, yeah, badly written, also negative, but like badly written and didn't really know what he was talking about. Fucking um, sure, sure, it wasn't. No, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved in a turf war. No, it definitely is that, Nick. It definitely was him. He was writing bad reviews. Let's sure, not get it, sure it wasn't, uh, no, 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 Nick. no, 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 sure it wasn't it the was. head on show himself. No, 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 <laughs> not gonna get it. <laughs> Anyway, the point is, I got a bad review, and that day 
I was feeling very down. I remember my manager came in to see the show that night. She was like, oh, congrats on the sitcom. And I was like, nah, don't give a shit. Got a bad review out. I've only sold 25 tickets. This is bullshit. And she's like, no, you've, it doesn't matter. You don't need Edinburgh anymore. And I, was I know, like, but no. then you can't leave. If you're yeah, said, all right, that- see you later. I'll get in a train. But that's what Edinburgh does to you, doesn't it? Edinburgh just makes you think that all that matters is that show and that oh it's a bubble i love edinburgh that's what i love love it it's because you smash it nick you smash it every single time no wonder you bloody love it every single time as well (laughs) i'm not gonna i mean it's it'd be awful if i said it but uh it's great to finally get a a guest on that's heard of me (laughs) (laughs) i remember watching you do the pleasant's fourth um which show that was two nights under the ground no pleasant fourth was one man megamyth the, yeah, that was it. The one where you screen skip it at the uh, at your tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very <laughs> funny. I often think about that uh, when a bad song comes on. I just think skip it. <laughs> skip it. Yeah, that's my that's the fa- that's my favorite thing I've ever done. Uh, what that show? That, that route. That skip it bit. Is it? Oh, that's it. my favorite bit. I think oh, that's brilliant. Nice. Um, but um, and then what was the song that you ended on? Because obviously the joke was that you it was loads of shit songs and then you you said yeah. a ridiculous song the joke was the joke was that they were all uh gay anthems <laughs> saying skip it because i because uh, the audience meant to think that i don't that my ipod is filled with gay anthems <laughs> and my my image is all about like heavy rock uh and, and heavy metal and so I'm like going, skip it. And there's Pet Shop Boys and Kylie Minogue. And I'm going, skip it, skip it. And then... Uh, Is it Xanadu? It lands on Xanadu. And I go, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that I wanted to listen to Xanadu, which is a fucking banger. I've got a framed poster of the album artwork of Xanadu in my bedroom. I love... Yeah, anyway. So I don't know. I think it's a fairly near-the-knuckle joke these days. Very funny. A lot of people wouldn't wait for the punchline to make their decision about uh, what sort of person I am. So I don't know. I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I don't think also, were you wearing spandex at the time? You're definitely wearing something that made it. Yeah, I was wearing spandex. Yeah, but you know, um, it's uh, all good. I mean, uh, every single, just just for the record, every single one of those songs on there is on my personal um, iPod. And I still have an iPod. Nano. Nano? I don't have an iPod. Um, I don't think <laughs> I at the time. Let's not talk about my career. Um, <laughs> we've had an hour of that. <laughs> um, so let's talk more about your terrible review. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's get into that. It was, um, you know, it was hurtful about it. It was a whole show about my mum. It was a whole show about growing up with a single mum. And I think it was a good show. It got nice reviews other than that one. Um, but the guy said it was boring. I was like, well, that's just a nasty to my mum, isn't it? <laughs> she said her life was dull. So how many stars did you get? It doesn't matter how many stars. The point is, it was, one, <laughs> it was less than three and it was more than one. Oh, two is the worst, isn't it? It's hurtful. It's really hurtful. I two is know. just like, don't, f- two is like, um, it's just like you can't do anything with the two because they're not saying it's shit. They're just saying it's unremarkable. And so yeah. if you've got a one-star review, you have all these fucking jackals that turn up to watch a one-star show. Yeah. You're brilliant. I've sold out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But and two is the, like, but just two, pointless. Two and three is like, what are you yeah. meant to do with that? Yeah. It's a shame. 
it's, but it's, only, it's only their opinion and uh, who's laughing now and you know i maintain there was a tech issue that show it was that was what threw me off it was that's what made it dull it wasn't <laughs> writing yeah i had a tech issue for an entire month once uh, <laughs> it's it terrible nah you just fix it on day three don't you but it's too late by then um yeah 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 um would you do edinburgh again yeah and i would i do actually love it and i've sort of missed it um i thought about going up this year actually but then i just thought no why um but i will go up next year i think and how's, how's it working this year i don't really i because everyone's i not everyone i keep getting people saying are you doing edinburgh and i'm like not only i'm not doing edinburgh but i didn't even realize until it was way too late that it was even an option yeah so it's I, weird I might have done people are doing like i think two or three dates basically in um in like very sm a few venues that are open um, but it does seem like people are going like just from pictures of people putting up like, it seems like people are selling out however so um but yeah it's not a proper french but yeah i would go back yeah because i mean there's no better feeling is it like than writing a show and doing it for a month it, it is amazing even you know even on the down days um the feeling i like writing it i like having done edinburgh it's the bit in the middle that's the tough bit i think at the end oh, of okay. it i've really yeah. pleased myself but there are some there are some happy days at Edinburgh, sure. Like there's, the, you know, the, when you we get a good crowd and you, you yeah, smash yeah. it, there's no better feeling. It's a bit like um, it's a bit like joining a gym, right? And you think I'm gonna join a gym, and so you join the gym, but then you've actually got to go to the gym, <laughs> and then you kind of like drag your feet and then you do it and then you go to but once you've gone to the gym at the end of going to the gym you feel great but actually the process of going to the gym yeah and also you have to go to lots of little gyms before you go to the main gym to test whether <laughs> you're good enough to go to the main gym well yeah you basically go well i, I want to go to the gym but it's in my building and I, a lot of my neighbors are at, go to that gym so i've got to go to little gyms to actually get some definition <laughs> and tone so that when i turn up to the gym i'm not like starting from scratch yeah yeah, yeah also yeah. i question how useful the little gyms are sometimes because they often have bear no relation to the big gym at all and so you're you're just practicing saying something Agreed. which has no real relation to what you're doing and all it really does is it just means whatever the last one is all be it will decide what your mood is for your first show of the uh i the always think gym. if you have a good preview the last one before Edinburgh, you're in for a tough month. You need to have, <laughs> you need to dine your ass hard about July, you know, whatever it is, 28th, and uh, and then go in with just no confidence. So then, so then, it you you work hard right at the end. Yeah, I think that my I I was looking through Facebook is such a weird app. Like, I don't ever go on Facebook, but I get kind of notifications, and you go on it, and I literally cannot kind of like uh, navigate my way around Facebook on my phone anymore. And yet it comes up with like reminders of like, this is what you're doing seven years ago. This is what you're doing 12 years ago. And you go, yeah, all right. They all left me. Um, <laughs> stop stop that, reminding that, me. That baby show come up again. <laughs> and um, and uh, big babies. And um, <laughs> uh, so it's like, um, I got like these updates, these status updates of, facebook and it was like going you know like 11 years ago i was ill in bed uh <laughs> throwing up and uh and with a fever like the like like three days before i was getting on a train and going up to edinburgh it said you know this is the week before edinburgh and i'm and, and, 
and I'm bedridden. And I think that happened like two times. There was one time in 2010 where I had a bunch of previews and I just like canceled all the previews. I was like, I'm not going to do them. Um, and that was one of the best years I've ever had where you just like go, I, I had, I, I had a choice of either I lose my voice um, and go and do all the previews or I just rest my voice for a week because the previews are shit and I'll just see what it's like up in Edinburgh. I think the less, I like writing a show for Edinburgh and then getting off the train and, uh, <laughs> and just see how it goes. Yeah. I, I did. I definitely, way. I definitely over previewed with others. Well, I, I pretty all my shows just, I, I did like 30 previews and it was just insane. Like there were some really good ones, but you just drive yourself into the ground, like traveling around to fucking Darlington to perform to 10 people. And then you take what they thought as gospel and you rewrite the whole thing. Like it's just <laughs> mad. Yeah. And I also think that, that uh, the general public um, sort of misunderstand what a preview <coughs> is. And they say comedy for a fiver. Brilliant. And then they go and then they're like, well, this is shit. And you go, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's a fiver that's why it's a fiver but so i sort of like whenever i preview i try and stay within london and then after edinburgh that's when you take it out and about because sometimes i did a preview in leeds and then i did the edinburgh and then i went to leeds and i did it and people were like we've already seen the show and you go well you didn't you saw maybe three jokes in this show but you saw it as a preview you've got to understand the difference between me reading off a piece of paper and me, you know, in spandex, like doing a finished show. You got to. That's um, Leeds for you, isn't it? That's, Leeds is um, the, the best place to gig. Is it? Do you think? The wardrobe in Leeds is my favourite. Oh, yeah, that is a good thing. Um, I think Manchester's my favourite. I can't think where specifically. I think the dance. Is it the dance school? Yeah, the dance house. The no, dance house in uh, Manchester is incredible. Actually, it's it's weird. I find London gigs tough. I think um, uh, Brighton is the toughest. And ah. then uh, as soon as you start going north, they're all amazing. And then yeah, uh, like Leeds and Manchester are real standouts. And then Glasgow. Yes. Yeah, Glasgow is incredible. And for some um, reason, Brighton is just kind of like, we're not... Like, I'll go into Manchester, I'll go, oh, fucking hell, Manchester. And then they'll be like, whoa. But you go into Brighton and you go, fucking hell, Brighton. And they're like, well, if you don't like it in Brighton, no one's making you come here. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think um, that Liverpool was the by far the hardest place to gig until Hot Water Comedy Club came along. And now it's literally the easiest gig in the world. So they've really had a they've change of fortunes for Liverpool. So what's that? What's what? hot water comedy? Come on, explain to. Oh, it's um. You explain to the uh, explain to the listeners. Uh, relatively <laughs> a relatively new club that they set up. These lads uh, and they used to just run a gig in a like a travel a travel lodge, and they they've saved up and bought a venue, and it's genuinely the best comedy club in the country. And they just know how to run a comedy night, and it packs out every single like they do like five shows on a Friday. It's insane, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a joy to play, and they've sort of made famous. They've sort of made celebrities out of some of their main, their main compares and stuff. Like Paul Smith has basically launched a career off being the compare of this comedy club because everyone in Liverpool goes there and watches all the clips online. It's just incredible. It's like a little cult. Oh, they're the clip boys. 
they're the clip boys. They're the ones who pioneered the clip. Now every club has a bloody camera and puts right, it. Yes. you after and said, can we put this online? I'm like, no, don't put it online. Yeah. It's, it's all my jokes. They've got, five, they've got five gigs a night. And do you yeah, do no, five of them if you get booked for it? There's two venues and you double, and there's like three in one venue and then two in the other. And then you do it for Saturday as well. It's, it's, oh, it's, do you wow. do all five gigs or do you just yeah. do? Yeah, yeah, you run between them. Must be fucking knackered, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's pretty knackering, yeah, but incredible. Good. But then, how long are you doing? Twenty. Yeah, just twenty. Yeah, it's that thing of you know, you know, it's like when you double, you sort of so lose. Just twenty. That's an hour and forty minutes. That's more a than a lot of performing, and you sort of forget where you are. Like, yeah, I exactly. The ninety-nine club doubles in in central London, where you sort of run between you know, like uh, around Piccadilly area between gigs. And by the, by the end, you're just sort of like, you don't know who's in the front row. You don't know who you've talked to. You think like, you're a lawyer, aren't you? I'm like, no, that was two gigs ago. Like, <laughs> completely lost track of what you're doing. One of the things that I romanticised about the early days of Edinburgh was that, um, you know, when I started, there weren't like loads of clubs in London. So you could maybe gig once every two weeks. But by the time you got to the second gig, two weeks later, all of your nerves came back. So you were too nervous to have learned anything from your first gig. So when you go up to Edinburgh and you're doing like the free fringe or whatever, and you end up doing like five, six, seven gigs a day and you're running all over the place. In my head, I'm like very romantic about the fact that it's like, oh God, you could do a month's worth of gigs in a in in, in a in a in a week, you know. Yeah. And it and oh, it was so wonderful. Um, but I also remember like my um uh, quality control really slipping by the end of the day <laughs> and i would be like well they must know i'm knackered right i've done seven gigs uh what's your name mate yeah brilliant you know like real shit stuff uh, I, I quite like i quite like how relaxed you can be in edinburgh doing those gigs and how you'll just like someone will disappear for half an hour and you won't know where they've gone they've gone just did a gig we've just walked somewhere you just leave a group wander off somewhere do a gig come back to the group and i like that it's nice it's kind of like oh yeah just did it very casual no one thinks about it but nick nick you're totally right about the more gigs you do the least the less you care about the the, the, (laughs) that audience and you sort of walk off going oh i did a bad job there those hundred people don't like me (laughs) yeah but then i think i care less who gives a fuck i've got another gig now (laughs) and i'm gonna be twice as bad Um, it's like, I think that's a really important, um, thing to go through. Yes. It's it's good to get to a point in Edinburgh when you're gigging so much that you're not, uh, overthinking all the gigs and thinking them all as like precious little diamonds. And you kind of like go, all right, so where are we? And it also allows you to kind of like go, well, I could do my material. I know that works, but what are we doing in this room particularly yeah Um, what can we say about this audience and what can and it actually forces you or not even forces you it it gives you the um uh the confidence to kind of sort of um be the comedian that you would be uh if you weren't constrained with a waiting list and uh lack of audience yeah you'll be you're really good at that you're really good at like being in the room and making a whole thing out of the room i i can do it for like a few minutes and then i go oh god okay let's go back to the jokes now uh well i think it's because i don't have jokes so (laughs) i'm i'm forced to if i had the jokes then i would um i would definitely rely on them giving 
doing Edinburgh, I think, is the best thing in the world. When you're starting out, and you, as you say, you're not doing as many gigs in London or wherever you live, and then you go to Edinburgh and suddenly you do 60 in a month or whatever it is. And uh, I remember the first Edinburgh I did, I did uh, free fringe, 11 p.m. at night, every every night. With, it was a triple header, so it was three of us, and it all did 15, 20 minutes. And every night I watched a lad called Red Redmond, lovely guy. Um, I watched him do, uh, in a leotard, oil himself up and dance to the Beyonce single lady song. And that was, that was how we closed every single show. And you learn a lot from that as a performer. You learn <laughs> watching that and seeing reactions. And you also, when people walk out and go, wow, that red guy smashed it. And you sort of, you, you have to really look at yourself and think, well, what am I doing? Am I, am I doing enough? <laughs> I used to think, because that was the thing, wasn't it? People would do gigs in Edinburgh as a way to promote their own shows. And it, you'd go somewhere at like half 11 and there'd be three people in the audience and you go, you're not coming. Yeah. I don't know why I'm here. But the idea is always this idea that it's promotion in it for your own show. It's promotion. And then you're going, I'm only going to be doing a bit more of what I've done now. I'm going to give you a little bit and you can see a bit more of that if you want. But you're also like, I don't want you to come. And none of you are even coming. And then there's the heart-wrenching <laughs> moment when you give out flyers at the end and none of them take them. And you're like, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah, fuck them. <laughs> I gave someone a flyer uh, in 2010 and they said, and I'd just done my act with singing and poetry and, you know, audience participation, all this stuff. And I'd just done my, and on the way out, they said, oh, you're like um, Justin Lee Collins. <laughs> so I took my flyer back. <laughs> and I don't want you to come. <laughs> if you can't tell the difference between what I just did and reuniting the A-team, then it's like, what, what's the fucking point? You know, Don't fucking come to my fucking show. Fucking hell, you're making but me that angry. That was the commissioner of Channel 4, and it was a shame. It was. I had one, I had, I, um, I did, um, this was this was in like 2011. Um, it, so it was, uh, it was 10 years ago, but it wasn't 30 years ago. Um, and I did a gig in London uh and there was a commissioner from a channel there and he, he saw my act and he came up to me afterwards and he said have you ever thought about doing character comedy <laughs> and i said well in a way that's kind of uh you know not it's kind of what i do and he went good because I'm always on the lookout for the next Stavros, right? <laughs> and I'm like, Stavros, Stavros, right? It's 2011 or 12, right? We're on the lookout for the next Stavros. Stavros, Harry Enfield Stavros from 1984. You're on the lookout for the next Stavros. It's like, like if he'd have said Ali G. looking for ages. <laughs> it's like, if, he, if he'd have said Ali G, it would have been a dated reference, but it would have been like, yeah, I know what you mean. But Stavros was just like, what? <laughs> And he was in charge. Do you know what I mean? He was the main guy that was on the lookout for the next Stavros. I'm looking. I'm still looking. He's still, still out looking for the next Stavros. Sure, mate. Uh, you've just seen a character. Well, I'm not a character comedian, but you've just said, have you ever thought about doing character comedy? It's just like, oh, fucking <laughs> hell. That was just me up there, mate. Um, fucking hell. Absolutely. Fu anyway, it's great. It's great that you've had your crack of uh, the whip. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
But like a sitcom genuinely is like the holy grail, isn't it? Of 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 things you would like to have done. Yeah. Does that feel like that's that's up <laughs> it there? Does, it feels incredible. Uh and it actually is just a huge relief. It's just sort of like, oh God, I've done it. Like I've done the thing I was main aiming to do. And like, not that I want to quit or anything. It's just like, ah, oh, it does take a bit of the pressure off. I'm just sort of, oh, I've done the thing. I worked really hard on that. And that's, that's, um, that's achieved now. And also if anyone says when I'm older and I have to become an Uber driver or something, um, and someone says, oh, you did comedy, did you? I'm like, yeah, yeah no, I wrote a sitcom. I, but I don't look yes. at the, don't look at, don't read about it. Just, just know that it did happen. And that's, I achieved <laughs> something from those 10 years of working hard. And do you Obviously, know anything I... about a second series or anything like that yet? Um, no, we don't. We don't know yet, but we're we're hopeful. I mean, if ITV have backed it so much, they've put it everywhere. They've bloody spent a fortune on adverts, so they must think it's all right. Um, and um, it's doing really well on the hub and stuff. It's like the most popular thing on the on the hub, which is really nice. Um, which I don't know how many people watch ITV Hub, but wh- however many are on there, a lot of them are watching Buffering. <laughs> it might be a really small number, but <laughs> they're watching it. Just for our listeners, Steve. Uh, just explain to the people at home what ITV Hub is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like iPlayer, yeah, but less what, less yeah. efficient. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I was. I knew that's what I. That's the way I'd have said it. Yeah, and oh, and more for, a bit like that. It's very. Is it more for? Is it all for these days? They've all changed for. all for. All for. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, I said more for, but. What's just again? More What's for. the difference between more for and all four for the people at home? <laughs> more for was a channel, wasn't it? Does that still exist? I don't know. It's a good name though. It Whatever is. it is, it's all great. More for sounds a little bit like awful. Yeah. So I don't know. All four. Um, um, I'd say ITV Hub isn't quite as good as all four in terms of the range of shows it's got on there, but it works. Right. It works. Works. And it, it, you know, you can watch buffering. And we should on there. say you can see you can see all of it. Oh yeah, that's a whole. Yeah, it goes out on TV every Thursday at ten, which is nice. You know, straight after Love Island, you got a nice captive audience there. Um, But actually, I think the best way to watch it is just to binge it on the hub. It's very bingeable. It's it's uh, you know, it's cliffhangers and stuff, and uh, just takes about two hours, I reckon, two two hours ten to watch the whole thing. Just do that. Binge it on the hub. The twenty two. It sounds like we're wrapping up, but we're really just ramping up. Because now we're going to just binge it on the hub. It's 22 minutes an episode. Uh, if you watch it on the hub, uh, they cut out the adverts as well, right? So you just go straight. Less back. adverts. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask, just a, this is a bit of a selfish personal question, but um, uh, uh, how long is the script if it's if you're writing 22 minute episodes? Well, physically, how long is it? How many pages? How many pages? 20, I think tw- they were all about 24, 25. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, great. And do you write? <laughs> do you write an ad break in there, or do they do it? Uh, but we do it at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we do put break. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, I'll um, I'll, I'll apply that to. Uh, <laughs> I, need to I need to cut. I mean, I need to make some cuts. Are you Are you great. working now? What are you talking about? And so, um, <laughs> right. So, um, so speaking of sitcoms, uh, do we want to talk about? Do, have you got any favourite films? Do you like films? Um. Yeah, well, I've got loads, obviously, but uh, I was thinking recently, I watched, you've seen Promising Young Woman? I haven't seen it. No, is it good? The new Carrie Mulligan film. It's honestly brilliant. It's, like, incredible. I watched it, I thought, oh, that might be the best film I've watched maybe in years. Uh, Written by Emerald Fennell, who is, uh, who was in The Crown and played um, 
the, the, the you know, Camilla. Camilla, yeah. And she's also the sister of John Robbins's wife. So there's a lot of connections. Um, and I love if that would be the first thing you'd say to her. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wait. Oh, I'm John Robbins. John Robbins is your brother-in-law, right? And she's like, oh, I've got, I've got an Oscar. I'm like, no, 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 you know John <laughs> Robbins. Um, uh, anyway, it's brilliant. And it's about a woman who basically tries to avenge her friend's uh, sexual assault um, by sort of tricking men into thinking that she's more drunk than she is. And they kind of try and take advantage. And then she sort of wakes up and uh, gives them the fright of their life. I uh, thought it was more of a revenge film. I always, I thought the trailer made it look like she's on some sort of killing spree, but that isn't my no, understanding of what the, a, the a, film is at all. It's a kind of justice. She's trying to get justice and and right the wrongs. Um, and it, and she's after one particular guy who who did who who hurt her friend. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. It's just it's just brilliant. And it's got the most fantastic ending. And uh, and you can sort of feel good about yourself for watching it because it's quite a. Uh, <laughs> a, big, a big topic that we all need to feel bad about you know yeah. so just by watching it you, that helps right just by okay, watching it helps that's good um it does look really good uh the thing that really throws me i'm just looking her up do you remember bonnie hunt yeah i know bonnie hunt from the cheaper by the dozen movies and she's sort of like an american comedian carrie no. mulligan looks so much like mid-90s bonnie hunt in the trailer for um uh, Promising Young Woman. From for a while, I was just like, "Is Bonnie Hunt in Promising Young Woman?" And then it was like, "No," because Cheaper by the Dozen was fucking. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, she does look. Twenty that. years ago was Cheaper by the Dozen. They don't make movies like that. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. Um, right, Promising Young Woman. Great. What else do you like? Um, what have I been watching recently? I'll tell you what I binged. This isn't a film. This is a TV series. Yeah. Um, it's a bit trashy, I guess you might call it, but Friday Night Lights, the American high school, uh, American football like drama. Is that, I, hang on, which one's that? Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm thinking immediately of Any Given Sunday starring Al Pacino. It's not that. that. Not that. What's it's, Friday Night Lights? Was that a film as well? That is a film. It is a film, but that's not the thing. It got turned into a film afterwards, but that's was, not the good element of it hang on it, it was a series and then it was a film i think so yeah yeah that was no. the order they did it do you um, think no it definitely was uh was it a I, film and then a series i don't know do we need to look this up i think <laughs> the series was in 2008 i think was, the film was, was anyone before. famous in the series Ta- carl chandler ah uh, okay um connie britton and taylor kitsch is pretty famous uh, yeah, yeah. Taylor um, Kitsch was he in um, uh, John Carter, Warlord John Carter of Mars? John Carter of Mars. Oh, and it says here the film first came out in 2004. Uh, so maybe, uh, maybe it was a film turned into a series. I think it would be fucking bonkers, Steve, if uh, they made a TV series and then they went, you know what? Let's make a movie. I think, it, unless it's Transformers. But that's happened loads of times. Think of um, in, the Inbetweeners movie. And. Bad Education, what, the movie. I suppose, know, yeah. If what was... do you know Bad Education and in between us for being there? Uh, sitcoms. Yeah. I mean, they're TV. They're, they're, like, the film was like, we've done a... We can get the cast back for... Yeah, a little cash cow. Um, Although it's like the in between us movies are the biggest uh, British movies of all time, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. They are. Um, 
Anyway, <laughs> Friday Night Lights is fantastic. It's just the characters are brilliant. Everyone's really beautiful, you know, and they just play football. And it doesn't matter that I don't really know anything about American football. I can sort of live out my fantasy of being the cool kid at school through these cool kids. And I feel seen, you know. Were, <laughs> were there shows that you had in mind when you were writing Buffering? Like, did you have like almost like a mood board of things? It's like, we want it to be like that. We don't want it to be like that. Yeah. Or we want it to be... What were you thinking of when you were going back to buffering? Yeah, but it's cool. related to what we're talking about. Sure, all right, okay. Can't right. get away from it, Nick. Got to keep, got to keep pushing it. Got to keep pushing uh, it. I'm just trying uh, to, I'm just trying to hit some uh, format points. That's yeah, we are. We're doing both. Sure. All right. um, no, there were things we had. We were keen for it to have some heart and some uh, a bit more seriousness to it than maybe you'd expect from ITV2 sitcom. So it has got a little bit of, uh, well, quite a lot of pathos in it, I guess. Uh, But in terms of pacing, we wanted it to be like an American sitcom with like three stories in it. Like sort of basically, I was obsessed with Modern Family, I think when I first formatted uh, Buffering. So I was obsessed with the sort of ABC, really fast paced, set them up and then just bang through the stories. Uh, And yeah, so I think it's got that kind of pacing feel to it, but then maybe slightly more... Uh, heart than so although modern family's got quite a lot of payoffs on it um so yeah that i guess that's what we that's what we sort of modeled it on um so in terms of actually sitting down and doing the typing who's sitting down doing the typing um i usually typed ian would pace around ian paces um, around and shouts out ideas <laughs> just shouts out words <laughs> um we but also we did a lot of it on zoom because it's like a lot of it was written during the pandemic so we would i'd be typing on my screen i'd share the screen and he would, you know, would say, oh, how do you make this line funnier? But also a lot of it was uh, just with a whiteboard and trying to work out the beats and all that stuff and trying to make it all to, you know, the actual scripting bit was probably the least intensive bit. Um, it was trying to get all the stories to match up. Um, and that was just a slow process of sitting in a room going mad. For but it's fun when it clicks, isn't it? Oh, it's the best feeling. And when you realise something's going to work, also you have that thing of, you have a really good day of writing and you think, oh my God, I've done it. We've clicked that. And then the next day you look at it and go, that doesn't make any fucking sense. What was I thinking? And you go back to square one. Um, but that is the best feeling. And that's why I desperately want a second series. Cause I just want to have that, that I want some structure in my life again. You know, I just yeah, want fulfillment. <laughs> I was saying to Nat that I've done a lot of before, I think before we were even recording, I was saying I've done a lot of first series. And I, so I think everything should automatically get a second series. Yeah, maybe not everything, but uh, <laughs> everything I've done should automatically get a second series, because um, you learn so much from the first series that I think that if you there's so much working out that's still visible. Like even we've been talking for the last three weeks about the Mission Impossible movies, and it's only about the third or the fourth film where they actually get the formula right. Yeah, the first two are just sort of like, how about this? How about this? And they go, no, we kind of got it. I think it's the fourth film when they've gone, let's do them like this. Yeah, Absolutely. well, I went, you know, Parks and Rec, um, yeah. I once went to a, a talk by Greg Daniels, who's like the showrunner on that and The Office, various other big shows. And um, he basically said that Parks and Rec, first series was kind of like, oh, they looked at it and went, oh, we got that wrong. And then and then they fixed it. from. So the second series onwards, they basically changed the main character, Leslie Nope, and made her slightly more likable, basically. And it transformed the whole sitcom. Not that it wasn't bad in the first series, but it wasn't, you know, what it could have been. And then it became one of the biggest sitcoms ever. And it's like, if they never got that chance to, yeah. and that was with 24 episodes they would have done, I think, of that first series. Um, 
so yeah i, I agree i definitely also you know, famously with british comedy you've got stuff like blackadder and the first series it's not unwatchable but it's not it's not an easy watch mm. it's kind of irritating and then when you get to the second series you go oh it all clicks and it's all brilliant and then they just yeah, yeah. um imagine where they'd to... be if they if you're able to do big baby series two imagine what what you would have done in that well i had very little control over that and um <laughs> I don't know why it didn't get a second series. No, I don't know why it didn't get a second series, but it certainly wasn't because Major Mustache wasn't pulling his weight. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's all I have to say about that. We've, we're in a we're in this we're in a dangerous uh, territory now because we've got six minutes yes. left of the show. We've yeah, got a game to play. We do, but we really haven't found out anything about our guest. No, so. Oh. I, well, feel like I've, I feel like I've given away quite a lot. <laughs> Have I been? No, you're, it's not your fault, Steve. It's not your f- um, I mean, your favourite. What's your favourite sitcom? Um, favourite sitcom is British sitcom is Gavin and Stacey, and American sitcom is The U.S. Office. Very basic, very basic choices. But Gavin and Stacey, U.S. Office. Um, and your favourite film stars Taylor Kitsch. Uh, I think we can all. No, the film isn't. The, we can the, all the, identify with that. <laughs> the film is <laughs> Promising Young Woman. Let's go with that one. Promising Young Woman uh, and that Al Pacino TV series uh, <laughs> about baseball. Uh, so, okay, we now we know you. Uh, I think that what we should possibly be doing now is working out a format of. Um, our guests should try and impress us with what they're into, and then at the end we can let them into the clubhouse or not. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's better. And then yeah. the final test—that's better, right? This is like the second series. This is when you work out the second he's, series. Yeah, with, and 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 Steve knows he's yeah, got but, a fucking sitcom. Yeah, but they don't do that on air. They we don't. do. <laughs> we're, we're doing it. For, this is for the naughties, mate. <laughs> we're doing it for. We're doing. Uh, we're doing iPods for the naughties. All right. Right. So, right, all okay, right. right, that filled some time. Let's play the game. <laughs> What's the game? The game is called... What's the game? It's uh, the internationally famous game, Better or Worse. And for that, I'm unfortunately going to have to hand you over to my esteemed colleague, Nathaniel George Metcalf. Nathaniel, hey, Steve, the game is called Better or Worse, <laughs> and you have to say whether the next person on the list is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my opinions to score points. Okay. Okay, beginning with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is Eamon Holmes better or worse than Arnold Schwarzenegger? Worse, definitely worse. 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 Is Sherlock Holmes better or worse than Eamon Holmes? Better, definitely better. 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 Not even real. <laughs> Is Katie Holmes better or worse than Sherlock Holmes? Worse. Worse. Is Katie Perry better or worse than Katie Holmes? Ooh, Ooh that's a tough one. Um... I think worse. I can only go on what I think of Katy Perry, and I think she seems lovely. Um, she seems nice. Do you not like Katie Holmes? I don't have very strong opinions on Katie Holmes, and I'm sorry Hang for that. Hang on, I'm thinking of Katie Hopkins. What's no, 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 no. Katie Holmes. It's Katie Holmes uh, from uh, Batman Begins. You betcha. Um, I'm going to say, I, I feel like, okay, I would personally say Katie Perry is better, but I'm judging you, yeah. Nathaniel, and I'm going to say you think she's worse. I think she's worse, but she seems nice, like you say. But I think she's yeah. worse. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Perry, better or worse than Katie Perry? Definitely better. 
but uh not not in the head sure maybe doesn't seem so well but um but <laughs> well let's not judge people on this show steve come on Th- that's true actually nick I, can i take that back <laughs> we can we can maybe edit fortunately it. unfortunately it's going out live so, <laughs> so carry on i mean he's one of my favorite sitcom characters ever let's so. stop this chatter let's keep going let's <laughs> matthew broderick happens. better or worse than matthew perry <laughs> worse because i think matthew me. perry's brilliant just want to say that okay. i think Roderick's better. I like Perry. I think Roderick's up until now, I've got every single one right. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, better or worse than Matthew Broderick? Better. Worse. He's a he's an odd man, McConaughey. Better. I think he's better. I like them both, but it's, I think it's climbing. Matt better. LeBlanc, better or worse than Matthew McConaughey? Better. Much better. Better. I would say better. You're worse. Right. You're, saying, you're worse. worse. You're wrong. Nathaniel, you're so wrong. And that's yeah. from Union. Matt LeBlanc was like... Didn't watch it. Didn't watch it. Expecting to, he was the best. Okay, I've heard some... Well, Fuck me, Matt mind. LeBlanc is fucking the, he's the best. Also, Matt LeBlanc has done such great... He's done... He's Top t- Gear? He's Top Gear. He, he's the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in the world, and he presented Top Gear. Yeah. He was, he's in Friends, and he's the only person that kind of like turned up to the Friends reunion and was like, I remember every episode, and I remember making them. And everyone yeah, else is kind of like, I wanted yeah. Friends. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're movie stars now. And he's like, nah, I've done Friends. And yeah. now I'm free to do Top Gear if I want. And he was like, I still watch it. I still watch it. I watch it with <laughs> my daughters. I love it. I loved him. Go on. Right. Matt Damon, better or worse than Matt LeBlanc? Worse. And if you disagree with me, you're worse, wrong. Worse. Better. Not. Damon Hill, better or worse than Matt Damon? <laughs> At racing, racing. Better. Well, not at racing as a as a human being. Better. Well, I think ra- racing is one of the biggest uh, ways of judging people. So better. <laughs> He's worse, Damon Hill. Boring man. Worse. Five. It can't be five. It can't can be it? five. It can't be five. Can't be five. Can't be five. He was almost. He was on the line for getting ten two, out of ten three, until he got five wrong. Four. Is that how? It's five. Man, I think it might God, be five. Less than a minute. Come on. <laughs> what is it? Is it five? They say it's five. Five. I got more. Yeah, it's five, five, apparently. Five. Well, okay. Well, I'm sorry, Steve. You got five, which means that you're not as good as Helen Ledra with ten. Uh, Dame Baptiste and Marina Sirtis with nine. Bash from Massive Raggers with eight. Jamie Adams, Carl Gass, and Izzy Sirtis with I didn't six. get five. You are <laughs> as good as Sarah Gibson and Laura Jean Marsh with five, which means that you are not even... I mean, you're bang. You're bang I didn't get five. I want a recount on that. I did not get I five. Can't get a recount. You can't get a recount. I'm sorry. Uh, it's terrible. Um, Steve, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I'm sorry world. it ended like this. Congratulations. I'm sorry we didn't get to know you in Absolutely. any way whatsoever. Um... You're welcome back anytime you want. Uh, if, uh, good luck with getting a series two. Uh, well done with the sitcom. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Have a wonderful afternoon. Sort your game out though. Look at a re- restructure of that game. It's an absolute farce. Listen, right. <laughs> you do not get to come on our show and talk this absolute bullshit. Thank God we stopped <laughs> recording. But this is the first guest I've ever had to fucking recommend. <laughs> And uh, thanks everyone for listening. It's been lovely <laughs> to spend another two hours with you. Good luck with all your lives and see you next week. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>